Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your gospel with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of our souls for all eternity. This we pray in his name. Amen. Yes, we are looking at Joshua 2 again this morning. It might seem strange to say that a story about a harlot, a couple of spies, and a holy war that results in the destruction of an entire city could be a gospel story. But that really is the case with Joshua 2. Joshua 2 preaches the gospel to us. This is a holy war story, yes, but it shows us God's holy war is good news. Today, when people think of holy war, uh, of course, they think of bad news. They think of things like 9-11 or a suicide bomber in the Middle East. But holy war in Scripture is entirely different. Uh, It's very unique. In biblical holy war, God's people don't fight for God. Rather, God fights for His people. And the goal of God's warfare is peace and rest, the fulfillment of His promises. And while God's warfare does mean destruction of the wicked, there's no getting around that, the wicked are also always offered salvation. And even here in this story you see it. Hebrews 11, commenting on Joshua 2, says, "...by faith Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe." And the implication is the Canaanites were wiped out, not because they were Canaanites, but because they had refused to believe. And if they had believed the way Rahab believed, they could have been saved as well. Rahab is saved by grace through faith. Her story is a story of salvation. In fact, this story really is proof of God's good and gracious intentions towards the world. God's desire to rescue the world from destruction. Yes, it is true. Israel is going to conquer the land of Canaan. But the very first Canaanite we meet, Rahab, is rescued. She's spared. She's saved. And so she really becomes a paradigm of God's gracious action rescuing sinners from destruction all throughout history. Indeed, her salvation is prophetic. It prefigures what is to come. Gentiles did not have to wait until Pentecost to enter the kingdom and the people of God. Rahab shows us that. Even under the old covenant order, Gentiles could be saved. But now especially in light of Pentecost, in light of the new covenant, in light of all God has done through His Son and the outpouring of His Spirit, certainly God's purpose of drawing all nations into the family of Christ His Son is coming to fulfillment in a much greater way. Rahab is just a down payment, the first fruits of a much greater global harvest that is to come. So let's look at this story. The story begins with espionage. Joshua sends two spies into the city of Jericho to inspect the city and to gather intelligence, uh, a common act in warfare. But we need to think in terms of biblical patterns here. Two spies sent into a city that is about to be judged. Two spies who then escape to the mountains. This reminds us of a story in the book of Genesis when two angels went into the city of Sodom and then later fled to the mountains. And just as Lot 
was rescued from Sodom. There, so here, Rahab will be rescued from Jericho. One thing we need to see about Joshua chapter 2 is that it fits numerous biblical patterns. This story connects with so many other stories in the Scripture. We're told that this pair of spies lodged at Rahab's. She is a harlot who keeps an inn, but the text is very careful uh, to show us they did not commit any immorality there. But her inn was certainly a place where they could soak up information about the city without drawing too much attention to themselves. Nevertheless, we find out that their presence was discovered by the king of Jericho. And so the king of the city sends his police force, he sends his agents to catch the spies. But we know Rahab lies. Rahab deceives the king and his men. That's what we talked about last week, her act of righteous deception. She provides cover for the Israelite men. She sends the king's agents off on a wild goose chase, off in the other direction. Then she turns to speak to the spies. She has lied to the king's men righteously. Now she will speak truth to the Israelite men who are with her. And really here she explains why she has done what she has done in lying on their behalf. It becomes clear that Rahab has truly come to trust in the God of Israel. She explains this to the spies. In verse 11 she says, The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord your God has given you this land. She believes God's word. Many of the Israelites were still doubting at this point. They had to wander in the wilderness because they doubted God's promise. Rahab believes the promise. And of course we know the New Testament celebrates her faith. I've already made reference to Hebrews 11, uh, James 2 we read this morning. Uh, These passages show us the New Testament interpretation on Rahab's actions. She had a living, working, saving faith in the God of Israel. She knows that Israel's God is not the God of Israel alone, but the God of all of heaven and the whole earth. He's the God of the universe, and so certainly He is the God of the Gentiles as well. In fact, it's interesting, her language here about their terror and their hearts melting, it really echoes the language of the Song of Moses all the way back in Exodus 15. After the Exodus, Moses led the people in a song. And it seems as if the lyrics of that song have reached the ears of Rahab because she echoes fragments of the lyrics of the Song of Moses when she speaks to the spies. Meanwhile, the spies, of course, know that their mission is utterly dependent upon Rahab's deception and Rahab's continued goodwill towards them. They were uh, delighted, uh, no doubt, and thankful to find this kind of hospitable welcome in the city of Jericho. But it's clear, too, that Rahab has her reasons for wanting to align herself with the Israelite spies. She knows that her people are wicked She knows they're serving false gods. She knows they will die in the conquest. And so she seeks to make a pact. She seeks to enter into a covenant with the spies. She says to the spies, I have shown kindness to you, therefore will you show kindness to me. And again, this is very interesting, even because of the word that's used here. The word for kindness in verse 12 really describes covenant love or covenant loyalty. Most often it's used of God's own covenant loyalty to His people. She says to the spies, I've shown covenant loyalty to you. 
Will you return that covenant loyalty to me and to my household? And of course, the spies agree to this. They enter into a covenant with Rahab. The spies promise our lives for yours. Rahab also asks for a token in verse 12. She wants a sign to go with the word of the spies, a sign to confirm their promise. Uh, The word for token in verse 12 is also interesting. It describes a sign that confirms a promise, but it's a word that has popped up repeatedly in the scriptures to this point. Uh, For example, the rainbow uh, is called a token of God's covenant with Noah. Circumcision is a token of God's covenant with Abraham. And perhaps most interestingly for this story, as we'll see, the blood of the Passover lambs in the book of Exodus is called a token. So that when God saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, his angel of death would pass over that house, leaving that house unscathed. This is what Rahab is asking for, a token tokens like this are good faith signs. They're confirmations of a promise. So that when you present the token to the promiser, he's to act on his promise. That's how these tokens work. Again, the Israelites agree to this, and it turns out here the token is a scarlet cord. And this cord really becomes central to the whole story. She lets this cord down out of the window, it seems, for the spies to escape. And that cord then becomes a sign of Israel's covenant with Rahab. There may even be something of a pun here in the Hebrew. Again, our English translations can't capture this. But the Hebrew word for cord or rope is the same as the Hebrew word for hope. And so in a way, the rope is a sign of her hope. Her hope is in the rope. The scarlet cord is a token that shows Rahab's hope in God's grace and God's people will not be in vain. That her hope is secure. The spies were let down out of the window by this rope. And I think that too is significant. Window escapes happen multiple times in Scripture. King David, later in Israel's history, King David will escape through a window. Get this, in 1 Samuel 19, while his wife Michal deceives Saul. That clearly is a story with a lot of connections to this one. A a window escape, a woman who deceives a king. In 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul records his escaping through a window in the city wall in Damascus so he could get away from the king Eratos. Uh, It's another story very similar to this one uh, as as the man of God escapes through a window as the king is seeking him out. Uh, God seems to like stories like this, stories that are cliffhangers, stories that involve dramatic last minute escapes that even often involve deception. In verse 18, when the spies tell her to tie the scarlet cord to her window in the city wall, they make it clear if she does this, she and her household will be saved. The Israelites will not be guilty of the blood of anyone outside the door of her house. They'll all be destroyed. But those inside the door of her house will be rescued. The Israelites swear this with their own blood. 
And so she binds the scarlet cord to her window. And in some way, we're already seeing the cord is connected with blood. She knows that if blood is not presented for her family, her family's blood will be shed. She's to present the sign so the promise will be kept. But really, that raises the whole question, what is the meaning of this scarlet cord? What is its symbolism? Some have said, well, perhaps this was used by prostitutes in the ancient world to signal that they were open for business, kind of like a red light district in uh, a modern day city. But that's not likely. I think it's very unlikely, actually, that that would be uh, the background here. Others have actually dismissed the cord as unimportant, thinking that any attempt to find some kind of hidden meaning or symbolic meaning in the scarlet cord is over-reading the text and is going to lead us to all kinds of fanciful uh, exegesis and and, uh, wild allegory, the worst kind of allegory. But I don't think that's right either. Uh, I think we have to say that every detail the Holy Spirit chose to include in the inspired text of Scripture is meaningful. God is careful with His words. The Holy Spirit does not waste His breath. The Holy Spirit does not waste words. And if the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include this, it must be for a reason. And indeed, as we start to connect the scarlet cord with other things in Scripture, we can see not only what it means, but why this was chosen as a token. A token, really, not merely of the mutual faithfulness between Rahab and the spies of Israel, but really as a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. The cord, in effect, becomes a sign of God's promise, not just the spies' promise, but God's promise. It becomes a token of His love. So when you look to the cord, you see the love of God. So what does it mean? Well, the cord is red. That's obvious. Uh, Red is the color of blood. Surely that's no coincidence. Uh, Blood is mentioned several times here in Joshua 2, so it makes sense that there would be some connection with blood. It is hung from a window, which is a place of exit from the house in this story. The window functions like a doorway. And so let me ask you a question. Can you think of any other occasion in the Bible when something red was placed on the entryway of a house just before the Lord swept through that place in judgment and that red thing on the entryway to the house kept the people on the inside safe? Well, yes, I think the answer is obvious. The scarlet cord reminds us of the Passover when the people would put the red blood, the scarlet blood of the Passover lamb on the lentils of their houses on the doorway of the house. And so if the red cord points to the red blood of the Passover lamb, then certainly it's no stretch to connect it with the red blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. That blood points to Passover, which in turn points to the sacrifice of Jesus. This scarlet blood of Christ will turn away the angel of death. That's right at the heart of this story. In fact, while Rahab is given the scarlet cord as a token here in Joshua chapter 2, the Israelites don't actually conquer the city of Jericho until Joshua chapter 6. 
And so what happens between Joshua 2 and Joshua 6? Well, several important things happen, but one of them in Joshua chapter 5 is the celebration of the Passover. The Israelites have their first Passover in the land of Canaan. And so now as the Israelites begin to approach the city of Jericho, they've just reenacted the Passover. Passover is at the forefront of everyone's mind. When they see the scarlet cord, they're going to think, Passover blood. The scarlet cord is Rahab's way of celebrating the Passover with her house. And like the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, she will have an exodus from Jericho as she escapes from the city when the angel of death sweeps through. Her whole house will be saved when the angel of death, now embodied really in the Israelite army, comes to Jericho. Rahab and her whole house will be spared because Rahab and her whole house are under the blood. And houses marked with blood are always spared. Rahab takes shelter under the blood-stained lentil. This Gentile becomes a sharer in Israel's Passover and Exodus. This is a story that shows us the width and the depth and the height of God's love. The, the wide expanse of God's grace and God's mercy. Saving even this one Rahab and her family who previously was designated for judgment and destruction. And indeed we see this all throughout the Scriptures. Every time God brings judgment, there is always a door of salvation a window of escape. Think of the door of Noah's Ark. Think of those inside the doors of the houses at Passover. Think of those here, those who are inside the door of Rahab's house. And again, of course, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the door. We find refuge and safety in Him by entering into Jesus and living in Jesus and dwelling in Jesus. Yes, God is a God who brings judgment. He is a God who brings judgment against the wicked. But God always provides a safe space where we can be protected from His wrath. God always provides a way of escape. But there's more. I think there's more to the meaning of this. And this gets a little more complicated, but bear with me here because this is one of those things that uh, I think is just amazing in how it ties the Scriptures together. Uh, for this, we have to go all the way back to the sordid story of, of Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was a Canaanite who married one of Judah's sons. That son died, and so according to the Leveret custom, the next brother in line married Tamar. He also died. And so Judah was obligated to provide his next son as a Leveret husband for Tamar. But Judah refused to fulfill his obligation. And so finally Tamar figures out that this is just not going to happen. Judah's not going to fulfill his duty to provide a leveret husband for Tamar. And so she disguises herself as a harlot. And she actually ends up sleeping with Judah. And part of her payment, part of how she is, uh, part of the payment that Judah gives to her, not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law, uh, what he gives to her as a pledge is a cord. A cord, very interesting. 
Well, Tamar becomes pregnant by Judah, and she gives birth to twins, to sons. And as she's giving birth, one of the twin sons puts out his hand, and the midwife puts a scarlet thread on his wrist. Quite possibly the very same cord or thread given to Tamar by Judah as payment for her services, so to speak. That cord is put on the wrist of the baby who sticks his hand out to say, this is the firstborn son. Judah is the royal tribe. This is the firstborn in the royal household. But then that child draws back his hand and the other twin actually comes out first. And so Perez is the firstborn and Zerah comes out second with the scarlet thread on his arm. Now what's going on? It's a very strange story, isn't it? Well, it's part of a bigger theme in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, again and again, you see where the firstborn son is replaced by the secondborn son. The firstborn son falls, and so the second has to take his place. And so second sons, secondborn sons, again and again, are the ones included in the seed line that will produce the Messiah. Here, the replacement of the firstborn happens at the very moment of delivery. Zerah will be the firstborn. He gets the scarlet thread, the sign of the firstborn, the sign of royalty. That's his now. But then Perez replaces him. Perez comes out first and takes Zerah's place. But Zerah still has the scarlet cord. He still has the scarlet thread, the sign of primogenitor, the sign of royalty. Well, this is what's interesting. Zerah's line actually comes to an end. And you know where it comes to an end? Zerah's line comes to an end in Joshua chapter 7, the very next chapter after the destruction of the city of Jericho. Achan, Zerah's royal descendant, a prince among the people of Judah, takes plunder that belongs to God and claims it for himself. And so because he's acted like a Canaanite, he gets judged like a Canaanite. God wages holy war against Achan, and Achan and his whole household are destroyed. Again, that's in Joshua 7. And so isn't it interesting, you put Joshua 6 and Joshua 7 together in the siege of Jericho, one Canaanite family is saved, and one Israelite family is destroyed, and both, as we will see, are connected to Tamar. Zerah's line comes to an end, and so he loses the scarlet cord. His family forfeits its royal status because of his idolatry. But Perez's line continues on. In fact, there's quite a bit about Perez's line in the Scripture. So just for example, you go to the end of the book of Ruth, and of course in the book of Ruth we know that Boaz is the great hero who performs the duty of a leveret. He does what Judah had failed to do. He becomes a leveret husband on Naomi's behalf by marrying Ruth. It's a complicated story, but it's all there. Well, Boaz is Perez's Uh, Boaz is a descendant of Perez. And of course, in that same genealogy, we find this is the line that David will come from. And so, of course, ultimately it becomes the line of Jesus Christ. Perez's line includes Boaz, it includes David, it ultimately includes Jesus. Perez is the royal son. He takes Zerah's place. 
But the thing is, he doesn't have a token. He doesn't have a sign of his royalty. Back at his birth, he missed out on the scarlet cord. But guess what? Here, Perez's family finally gets a scarlet cord. Because when Rahab is saved, Rahab, of course, is joined to the nation of Israel. We find out that Rahab ends up marrying a prince of Judah named Salmon, who is Perez's descendant. He's also a prince in Judah. You can read about this in 1 Chronicles 2. And of course, also in Matthew chapter 1, we find this. And so Rahab marries into Perez's family, into the tribe of Judah. She brings a scarlet cord with her into Perez's family, making Perez's line, the royal line. They will now be marked by the scarlet cord. The scarlet cord is transferred from Zerah's line, which was destroyed, to Perez's line, which will produce the Christ. And again, all this comes to fulfillment in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And it's very interesting if you read Matthew 1. I didn't read it for us this morning, but if you read that whole genealogy, you find that among the women mentioned there, Tamar and Rahab, are both mentioned. Both are Canaanite harlots who marry into the Messianic tribe of Judah and are given a place of honor. And both are connected with a scarlet cord. Rahab becomes a princess. She is the mother of Boaz, the great man of God. She is the great-grandmother of David and the great-great-great-etc-grandmother of Jesus Christ. She is a queen among the people of God, a queen in the covenant family. She goes from harlotry to royalty. And that really brings us to the other aspect of this story, which shows us this is a gospel story. Have you ever wondered why almost every time Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, she is called a harlot? This is how she's identified again and again. You ever notice that? You ever wonder? It's, it's almost like she's got to wear this scarlet H everywhere she goes in the Bible, always being marked out as a harlot. So Hebrews eleven thirty one by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who did not believe. Why identify this poor woman as a harlot when it's clear she's repented? And trusted in God. James 2, it's the same thing. Was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, the text says. So even in the midst of praising Rahab for her good works, she is identified as a harlot. Why not drop that? Why does she have to lug around this baggage and carry this as part of her identity all the way through the Bible? Well, I think there's a very good reason for it. It is to remind us of her story. Because her story is the story of the gospel. Her story is our story. The whole redemptive theme of the Bible is the story of the harlot being transformed into the bride. The whole redemptive theme of the Scripture, it's all about the dirty harlot becoming the spotless bride. That's that's the beauty and the brilliance of it. The harlot becomes a queen. The harlot finds grace and finds true love. That's the story of the gospel. And that's the story 
of Rahab. We need to be reminded of where Rahab came from. So we can see how glorious and how gracious it is where she's going. We need to be reminded of where Rahab came from because it's where we come from too. And where she goes is where we are going as well. The story of Rahab is the story of the gospel. We are all Rahab. We are all harlots who have been converted into brides through the scarlet blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, we have our exodus and we have our transformation. Through the scarlet blood of Jesus, we find forgiveness and renewal. We're harlots who have been washed and made spotless in the scarlet blood of the Savior. See, the story of Rahab really repeats itself again and again in the Scriptures. This story repeats itself again and again so that we will get the point, so that we will not miss this. Because it's so easy for us to miss this. You know, sometimes the way the Gospel story is told, it'll go something like this. Jesus comes as the mighty warrior to slay the dragon and to rescue his damsel in distress, this beautiful bride, this gorgeous bride dressed in white. And so the gospel all too easily gets treated as the story of a good girl who is worthy of love, and her bridegroom finally comes to her and she finds that love that she's really deserved all along. But that's not the story of the gospel. That's not how it works. No, when Jesus comes to fight and to suffer and to die for his bride, she is still a harlot. He's not dying for a a damsel in distress robed in white. He's dying for a harlot clothed in shame. It's not until after Jesus fights and dies for her that she becomes beautiful. His shed blood makes her beautiful. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lots of men would go and die for a beautiful woman. Paul says in Romans 5, it's easy to find somebody who will die for somebody else who's good. But what about somebody who would die for sinners? What about a man who would die for a harlot? That's what Jesus has done. Jesus does not die for his bride because she's beautiful. She is beautiful because he has died for her. I want you to see this. The whole gospel story is the story of a wedding. And who does Jesus marry? He marries a woman with a past. God the Father loves the harlot so much, he has arranged for his son to marry one. And this is a story you see play out in the Scriptures again and again and again. You see it in the book of Hosea. You know, the prophet Hosea, he is told to take the harlot Gomer and make her his bride. And to make her beautiful by loving her sacrificially. Gomer is another Rahab. And Hosea is a picture of Jesus. You see it in the story of the woman that we read about in Luke 7 this morning. She's unnamed in the story, but traditionally she's understood as Mary Magdalene. And I think we can and should identify her that way. Mary's actually mentioned in the very next passage, if you keep reading in Luke chapter 8. This seems to be Mary Magdalene who comes to Jesus. This woman is a harlot. But she comes to Jesus in the home of the Pharisee, and she washes the Lord's feet with her tears. And Jesus speaks words of forgiveness to her. Meanwhile, you have the dry-eyed Pharisee who stands aloof, 
in self-righteous judgment, thinking to himself, surely if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let this happen. He wouldn't let himself be touched by a woman like that, by that kind of woman. This Pharisee who didn't think he needed forgiveness. Mary Magdalene is forgiven in that passage. She's forgiven because of what Jesus will go on to do for her at the cross. And indeed, she is with Jesus when he dies on the cross, standing at a distance, but yes, there. And of course, she is the first one to meet Jesus in the garden after his resurrection. And symbolically, symbolically, it is as if Jesus and Mary are a new Adam and Eve in a new Eden. She represents the bride. She represents the church. Jesus has rescued and transformed her by his scarlet blood. He's transformed this harlot into a spotless bride for himself through his death. Mary Magdalene is another Rahab. Another picture of the church, a picture of us. Or consider the famous story in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at a well. Just as Jacob met his wife Rachel at a well, just as Moses met his wife at at a well, so it is here. We know right off the bat, she's going to be a bridal figure and Jesus is the bridegroom. And so naturally, as they begin to have a conversation, their discussion turns to the topic of marriage. And it comes out that she has been married five times, and the man that she is with now, the sixth man, is not her husband, hasn't even done the decency of marrying her. So five plus one, that's six. Jesus comes as the seventh, the seventh man, the perfect man, to be her perfect husband, to rescue her from her sordid past, and to give her living water. She finds Jesus to be a source of love and grace, a source of living water. And so what does she do? She then calls the people out of her city to come and meet Jesus so they too can drink freely of this life-giving water and become part of his spotless bride. And the disciples who have been away, when they come back, they marvel at the grace that Jesus has shown to this sinful woman. The Samaritan woman is another Rahab. Indeed, another picture of the church, the bride of Christ. The adulterous woman who becomes the faithful bride through the shed blood of Jesus. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, that's when the living water flows out of his side in John's Gospel. But this whole theme really comes to a rather remarkable culmination in the book of Revelation. And I know it's sometimes tricky and difficult to to cite Revelation because we don't know the book as well as we should, although our very own Peter Lightheart is doing all he can to to rectify that. Uh, But the book of Revelation really retells this whole part of the book of Joshua. It's as if Joshua has provided the template that Revelation is now fulfilling. There are all kinds of parallels, and these are not hard to spot if you know to look for them. If you just read through Revelation, you'll see these. If you know the book of Joshua and you read Revelation, you'll see these connections. The city of Jericho in the book of Joshua has become the city of Jerusalem. It's called Babylon, but it really stands for Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Both books are about cities. They're called great cities, the city in Joshua and the city in Revelation, and they're both full of treasure. Joshua sends two spies into the city in Revelation. Two witnesses go through the city. In the battle of Jericho, the city walls fall when seven trumpets blow. 
In the book of Revelation, seven trumpets blow, announcing judgment on Jerusalem. In Joshua, the people set up a memorial of 12 stones. In the book of Revelation, the new city has 12 foundation stones. In Joshua, uh, there is a Passover meal with a lamb. In Revelation, there is the marriage supper of the lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover. In Joshua, one family comes out from the corrupt city to be saved in a new exodus. In Revelation, the faithful are told to come out from her, to make their exodus from the wicked city, to corrupt, to escape the corrupt city before it falls. In Joshua, uh, Joshua himself kneels before the divine commander who has a sword drawn, ready to lead the army of the Lord into battle. In Revelation, John kneels before the divine commander whose mouth is like a two-edged sword and who will lead the people of God into battle as his army. In Joshua, there is a water crossing. In Revelation, there is a water crossing. And most importantly for our purposes, in Joshua, there is a a harlot arrayed in scarlet who is transformed into a beautiful bride ready for her husband. And we see the same thing in the book of Revelation. In Joshua, the harlot with scarlet marries a prince of Judah, Salmon. In Revelation, the harlot with scarlet marries the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself. Both Joshua and Revelation are about a harlot with scarlet who finds grace. In fact, if you keep pressing into the Scriptures, you find this theme there everywhere. Under the Old Testament law, under the Torah, in Deuteronomy 22, new brides had to have tokens of virginity on their wedding night. Rahab the harlot could not have a token of virginity, but God gave her one in the form of the scarlet cord, a sign that she was forgiven and beloved and renewed and accepted. The scarlet cord is a gospel token, a sign of salvation, a sign of Rahab's transformation from harlot to bride, from harlotry to royalty. Here in the book of Joshua, a book about holy war, a book about conquest, we have a love story, a story of grace, a wedding story, a story of a great harlot who becomes a spotless bride. Uh, The story of a woman previously marked by unfaithfulness who is transformed into a chaste wife. And indeed, if we take this even further, again, I I told you this, this just presses out into everything in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, we meet a prostitute in Jericho. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, so in the Old Testament, we meet a prostitute in the city of Jericho. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, we meet a tax collector in the city of Jericho, Zacchaeus. And both enter the kingdom of God. Both find salvation. Rahab is from Jericho, a prostitute who finds salvation. Zacchaeus is from Jericho. He is a tax collector who finds salvation. Didn't Jesus say something about tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom ahead of the priests and the elders of the people? See, Jericho, yes, the city is judged, but it is a place of grace where the grace of God is put on display. Now, what does all of this mean for us? All of us are Rahabs. All of us have played the harlot 
in all kinds of ways. We've been unfaithful to God. We are all spiritual adulterers. We are all Rahabs. And because of our sin, we carry with us all kinds of guilt and shame. Hating what we've done. Hating even who we are. It is easy for anyone with any kind of conscience to be tormented by their sins. It's so easy for us to be tormented by our pasts because we have all sinned in so many ways. Again, we're all Rahabs. We have all played the harlot. And it's easy for us to think, oh, if I could just clean myself up, I I could turn myself into a bride that would be worthy of love. If we think we have to perfect ourselves, if we think we can get ourselves in order so that we would deserve love, so that we would be worthy of love, what happens? We just torment ourselves all the more. There's no rest or peace if you're trying to clean yourself up, trying to make yourself worthy, trying to make yourself spotless. You can't do it. All of these stories, Joshua 2, and all the times it's repeated in the Scripture, all of these stories show us the one and only way out of this mess Your checkered past will not keep you from becoming the glorious bride of Christ. You don't have to live a guilt-ridden, shame-filled life. To escape all of that, to have an exodus from all of that, all you have to do is accept the love of Jesus that cleanses you and beautifies you. Take hold of the scarlet cord. Take hold of the blood of Christ. Present the tokens that God has given to us. We'll do that this morning in the Lord's Supper. God has given us the tokens of Christ's body and blood. And every time we show God those tokens, we are proclaiming His death. And God keeps His promise. His promise to rescue us, to save us, to forgive us, to transform us. See, we have a husband in Jesus Christ who is full of love who loves the harlot, a husband full of grace, who forgives us all we've ever done, every sin you ever have committed or ever will commit, he forgives. And his love is powerful enough to not only forgive you, but to make you holy. That's his promise to you as well. He loves you as you are, but he does not let you stay that way. He loves you too much for that. But understand, he loves you. Yes, he really loves you. And He will not let go of you. He died to save you, to rescue you from Jericho, from Babylon. And He will keep on working in you and working on you to make you what He created you to be. A member of His body and a member of His spotless bride. He calls you out of Jericho, the doomed city. He calls you to walk in the freedom of a new exodus. And he calls you to a conquest, to conquer all your sins and your worldliness and your idolatry. As the prophet Isaiah said, though your sins were like scarlet, you are now whiter than snow. Rahab's story is your story Through the scarlet blood of the Savior, you have been washed and become a part of the spotless bride of Christ, robed in white. Let's pray together and give God thanks. Father, we do thank you that we are under the blood of Jesus, that his blood cleanses us and transforms us, indeed the whole of our households.
Father, help us to return the love of Christ with fitting devotion. Help us to live out this story. We know Rahab's story is our story. We played the harlot, but we've now been turned into the bride. You're making us spotless. You've washed us with the water of your word and baptism. You give us tokens of the bread and wine that we show to you to remind you of the promises you've made to us. Oh God, act on our behalf in these ways. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.